Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of the XXLA Architects podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. Today's episode features Virginia Tansman, FAIA. Virginia, better known as Ginger, had a long and illustrious career, which included building her own company, the Tansman Associates, from 1978 to 1997, and at its peak, she had over 25 employees and work in all types of sectors. Before and after running her practice, she had a lot of varied experiences as an architect working in many different types of places, and she was passionately involved with many nonprofits. I had such a great time talking with Ginger because she's so passionate honest, and really encouraging. Before we jump into the episode, I want you to promise me something. If you enjoy the show, when you're done listening, please take a moment to write a review. It really matters. Now, let's begin. At the Powerful Conference in 2015, you presented on the topic of can an architect really design her whole life? What do you think? Can she? At the time... I thought I could make the case. And since then, I've laughed at myself because, (laughs) what was I thinking? (laughs) What was I thinking? I actually stood up there and I tried to make the case. What I should have said was, you might have good intentions, but I don't know that we really have the ability. There are so many things that go on around us that are way out of our control. And I can think of many things that have happened in my life that were out of my control. And I, like all of us, I just had to cope with the circumstances. So I don't call that designing my whole life, unless you can design for the unforeseen. Right. I guess you always do put a contingency line in the budget. Sure. So <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah. So um, how did you decide to become an architect? I think it was the summer after my sophomore year of high school. I won a grant from the National Science Foundation for their summer program. The program I was accepted to was at West Virginia Wesleyan University, and it happened to be about the International Geophysical Year. What were they talking about? Among other things, global warming and the use of resources. That is completely reflected in what we're talking about today. And all these kids were so smart. (laughs) And one of them turned me on to a book about or by Corbu. But when I got back home, I went to our library and I got every book about architecture. And then they went into the state. They pulled in other books from the region. And I made all my term papers and every project I made by that. I also asked to be allowed to take a drafting class. They had no way for me to take a drafting class, particularly not as a girl. So I I went on through and I, you know, carried on from there. So I was about 15 when I just decided that this was for me. It just grabbed me all together. Wow. Never let go. I'm still there. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty incredible. So your parents must have been very supportive of that. My parents... They were excited that I was a natural student. They also wanted me not to get too far ahead of myself. Hmm. They were always counseling simplicity, modesty, and um, living a very direct life. So in those days and in that location, there was nothing like an advanced placement class. We didn't have any of that stuff. It was a small environment. 
And my parents were very supportive of everything that I did, but the idea was that I was uh, going to have a normal life. From high school, then, you, you went to Syracuse University. The following summer, we went on a family vacation. We were in central Pennsylvania. We drove north, and we arrived in Ithaca, New York. But my dad stayed in the car with my brother, and my mom and I went into the school unannounced. And there was a guy there and he talked with us for a while and he said, well, we'll take her. You know, I mean, she's a national merit semifinalist. Your grades are great. Your SATs are high and you've got it on paper. But we need to tell you, we really, really don't believe that this is a field for women. Wow. We are not comfortable with the idea. You would have to accept that if you came to this school. Well, my mother I could see her starting to foam at the mouth practically. And she said, well, what would you suggest? And the guy said, well, you could look someplace like Syracuse. <laughs> and my mother said, thank you very much. Come on, Ginger, we're going. Oh, wow. <laughs> the next day, we headed over to Syracuse. And the same deal, my dad stayed out there with my brother. And my mom and I went. The dean was in. The dean was Kenneth Sargent, and he was the lead partner in the largest firm in upstate New York. And he greeted us very graciously, took in what it was that I had to say and present. And then he said, oh, we want you to come here. This is great. In fact, if you can get your stuff in not so long after Labor Day, we'll just send you admission and you, you know, you'll be there. And that's exactly what happened. I never applied anywhere else. I was naive. I mean, I didn't even know that the world was my oyster the way I think kids do today and, and their parents do. So I went. It was wonderful. It was absolutely great. I was in a six-year program. I got two degrees out of it. It was high stress. It was hard, hard work. Were they hard on girls? Yeah, but I think they were hard on everybody. I did not have any horrible experiences. I think if I had been looking for it, I might have found some occasions when I was being pressed unreasonably, where I was I just wasn't getting the voice mm -hmm. that I might have if I were a guy. But it was not a bad experience. From third year on, I worked as well as going to school. I worked for uh, my professors. I also, at the end of the fourth year, I got married. Oh, wow. And I had, yeah, I had a first marriage in there. <laughs> Two weeks after graduation, we packed up a car and moved to California. <laughs> we drove across the country <laughs> while we were driving across. I, there was the Woodstock Festival. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, summer of 69, we bought a Volkswagen bus and I made curtains for it. We each had a backpack. We had a sterno stove. I brought my sewing machine. He brought paints. He was an artist. And and you just over went. we came. <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy. We both had, our hair was streaming. Sure. You know, I had hair down to my waist, and you know, it was just another era altogether. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So, what made you stay? We were staying with my husband's aunt and uncle in Burbank. We actually got to watch the moonwalk and stuff like that. Oh. And then we needed some money, so we each got a job. Lo and behold. Here came the draft notice, and the Vietnam War was still on. Oh. And I think our dream had been, when we go on maybe to San Francisco and go on other places, we, we knew nothing. We were mm -hmm. so young. Mm -hmm. And that ended up okay because he wasn't selected. So by then, we were in L.A. I've stayed here ever since. Right. <laughs> 
And the only downside of it ever was I was so far from home. Yes. That was that was very tough. But otherwise, oh my gosh, it, you know, it was just amazing. When you started working in LA, where did you work? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I was offered a job in Downey and it paid more than the $3 an hour that was the starting salary for somebody with an architecture degree. This is such an LA thing because I said it's 16 whole miles there. <laughs> I can't possibly do it. And I let that one go and I didn't go for the money. And instead I did take a $3 an hour job at a place right in the mid city that the, the job dissolved after three weeks Oh, because the guy had fought with his one and only client. You know, yeah. he, he said something stupid and he lost the account and that was that. I mean, he let the whole office go. One of the fellows I was working with said, I'm going back over to my old company, I think. Let me see if I can get you in. And he did. That firm is not around anymore. That was Burke Cobra Nicolay Archuleta or BKNA doing shopping centers. Oh. And there I learned to do retail projects. I also learned what a good education I had had at Syracuse because really within months there, I was actually supervising people. And I, I, now I had worked through school, but they had no business having me supervise people. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was there for three years, I guess. And I got to work on some incredibly interesting projects in terms of What's the reality of how these things go together? And how do you do this right and meet the code and, and make it, you know, attractive to shoppers? Yeah. And do it at developer rates. Right. So it was fascinating. I did um, anchor stores and I also did small retail shops just on the line of the mall. There's a culture to that. And I kind of learned that. I just think that's incredible that, you know, you, you were just out of school and you were working there like a month, maybe, and they elevated you to be a supervisor. I mean, well, the guy who headed, he was like the production head. He he saw that I had a good understanding of a lot of the stuff, and I was drinking it. I was like a sponge. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was so excited about learning it. And um, I credit my education at Syracuse, but also the fact that I was working through that time, most of that time, and that the local schools here were not turning out people who were ready to go. People still had more to learn first. This same individual that I was talking about, when he did that, I said, I'm not ready. I, I, I don't know this stuff. He, he gave me a whole building to do in Westlake Village at the old Westlake Village shopping center. I said, but, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not ready. I don't know what to do. He said, yes, you are. I will, I will back you. You ask me any question you ever want to ask me. You're never bothering me. Just do it and ask this guy and ask that guy. And, you know, we're just going to help you be a success at this because we need it. Wow. So I said, okay. And I remember I went home. I had sort of like a sleepless weekend. I went back in Monday morning and he said, are you ready? I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I, and I did it. And that was very helpful. At one point I called that my total immersion baptism. Yeah. That's amazing. It gave me also a great sense of confidence. And by the way, there was not one tiny piece of that that had to do with the fact that I was female. Yeah. That was just merit or nerve. You know, I was, I was not pushing for it. They pushed me. All I wanted was to be a participant. Since I was 15, I had wanted to be an architect. By then I was 24 or 25 or something like that. And it's like, I'm doing it. I'm really, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really doing it. 
And that sounds like a low goal, but it was entirely consistent with my own upbringing, my education, and the times. This was an office of maybe a hundred people, and they had an interiors division that was maybe a quarter of that, and there were quite a few women in that. But in architecture, there were just two, three, maybe eventually four or five of us. And we, did we huddle together? Well, we did, but we also got together with the secretaries because that was the point at which we were not permitted to wear pants to work and skirts were short. I needed to lean over the drafting board. This was not tenable. So I wasn't the ringleader. Everybody was experiencing this. And we all had gone out and we had bought pantsuits. We called each other at like 6.30 in the morning and said, okay, today's the day. I'm going to wear mine. Are you going to wear yours? And we all got each other going. I don't remember that day in particular, except fear. How can you feel fearful when you hear you are with two degrees in architecture, you're working on buildings, you're, you know, it's your life dream and you're scared to go to work because you're going to be wearing pants and breaking the rules. But that's exactly how I felt. And so did others. And that was consistent with the times in general. I mean, you know, in an office, you were supposed to be dressed in a very feminine kind of way and, and pants weren't considered feminine. It sounds so ridiculous now. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, that's, so that's part of my history. And, and in a way, you know, if I were writing my memoir yeah. or something, I, you know, it would be that. And you would look at that and say like, okay, well, um, it must have been a big deal for them. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I'm grateful that I can wear a skirt or wear pants and not think about exactly that. <laughs> exactly. So um, in the end, when I left that job, it was because they did not want me as a female going out to the field during construction of one of my projects. That's what I was going to say. How can you go out to a job site in a skirt and high heels? heels? That's exactly right. <laughs> and white stockings. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> all shiny stockings and all this crazy stuff. No, I made my pitch and I said, I really need to do this. And you needed it for your license. And these guys were simply saying no. So I went instead to Dan Dworsky's office. And so that was the big question on my mind. And when I interviewed, I said, now what about this? And they said, absolutely. Well, I went over there to do a, a big JCPenney store for them out at Pointy Hills Mall. Then I did a two-story office park and I got exactly what I wanted. I got to make all those mistakes too. Yeah. <laughs> I learned so much. What was it about Dan's office that made it so amazing for you? Dworsky Associates was very much Dan's personality. And I could witness how you deliver services. This was a smaller office. It was about 25 people probably. And so there was a level of detail, maybe... Partly, it was just that I noticed, and I hadn't noticed this at the other place, but I was noticing things like the graphics, the letterhead, the business card, the even that kind of thing, and somewhere in there, I just so admired how he was doing that. It was very ethical, is, yet ethical, principled, very clear and strong on design. He has a real modernist in the heavy, almost brutalist sense. He was a master of, of materials like concrete. Somewhere in there, I said, one day I want to be on my own. I got my license just after I got there. I let, I joined there in um, the fall of 72 and I got my license the following spring. 
I actually started setting money aside. 10 oh, bucks wow. or 20 bucks at a time. Just I just started, you know, some little thing that said, one day I'm going to want to do this. So, uh, so, you know, I appointed Dan my mentor, but he never really knew that. It was, it was so informal that I considered him my mentor and I, um, I just admired what I saw him do. And I like very much to this day his deliberate, thoughtful ways. He was like no drama, mm -hmm. just total commitment to high quality. It was perfect for me. And it came also at a perfect time in my own development, because now I had learned how to push a bunch of stuff through. And one of, one of the things I'd done at the previous job was whole packages of retail stores, nine, 10, maybe even 12 different shops, mm -hmm. say, in a mall. And I had learned how to push that stuff through. When I was there at his firm, I, I really thought differently about every line that I ever drew. You know, this is all still in the days of hand drafting mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah, It was very deliberate and really, really carefully thought through. And that attracted my brain. There were a couple of wonderful people there too, older guys. And by older, I mean 15 years more experience than I had. One particular guy, he, he would wow us all. His drawings were pieces of art and he just knew exactly what he was doing. He inspired us to do beautiful construction documents. Wow. You know, and I learned about specs there. And um, I also learned, Dan hired a guy for a while as a consultant just to shape us up in terms of project management. So huh. I learned about time control, budgeting, cost estimating, everything really except marketing. And in fact, later on, when I started my own practice, I remember saying like, I can do the work, but how the heck do you get the work? And I was already out on my own. <laughs> I had no idea how to get jobs. Oh, God. <laughs> that was crazy. Talk about naive. You know, I just didn't know. I, I worked it out. But <laughs> Wow. So um, I left there, however, because there was a big recession. Sure. 74, 75. And I needed a job all of a sudden. You know, my being in love with it and doing, I felt, my best work in a place that did its best work didn't mean that I was immune to the vicissitudes of the economy. Sure. So many of us left. And I, I then I went for a year to an interiors firm that was doing programming and interior design. And they had hired two of us who were licensed architects with the idea that they would get us to sign off on drawings. Oh, my and gosh. It never came to it because it was one of these initial firms, the three initials. One of my colleagues there said, if that S stood for my name, I might sign off on the drawings, but no. And and so he convinced me, too, that we were kind of being used. Yeah. So um, I was there for a year. I learned a whole lot about programming. And later on, I was selling programming services. I even taught it at Woodbury, too. Oh, okay. I'm a good programmer. From there, I went to what is now called Metro, but it was the old Southern California Rapid Transit District. And when I was there, I was there for two and a half years, I was the only architect in the joint. No trains, no, no rail work at all. This was all buses. They had like 18 different properties all around the region where they were doing maintenance and storing the buses overnight. And I learned about how to do those because oh. I did some work of some sort at every single one of those. And I was the only architect. 
Wow. Wow is right. I mean, it just, it blew my mind. And I didn't even realize it going in. I had, I had answered a blind ad in the LA Times. So I went there and I loved being there. Uh Why? Well, I was then in the public sector and we were hiring A&E firms to do some of these projects. And I was sitting in there. I was beginning to hear what people pitched. That was actually among my first experiences with pitching for listening to their yeah, pitches. Yeah, you're on the other And side. then we would hire the best one and then we would see what they, the contrast with what they actually delivered. And a light bulb went on over my head too. I was still socking money away. And there came a time when I said, oh my gosh, they talk big, but they're not delivering. I could do this. I could actually do this. Wow. And so the summer of 77, I saw a little thing in the LA Times. It said, UCLA Extension is going to do a program for women entrepreneurs. And that was in the days of the first frozen yogurt places. And we had about three people in the class who were going to do frozen yogurt shops. <laughs> and, and we had no other professional services people. I was the only one. Oh, wow. And they were just teaching us all these things that could help us start a business. They had us do all kinds of budgeting and really figuring out and projecting Mm -hmm. what it would take. And so I figured out I needed $40,000 for sure to start. So I had 20. So I started. (laughs) (laughs) So I did it on April Fool's Day. Of 1978, (laughs) I started my practice all alone with a folding table and chair from home in two rooms that I had leased at the Bradbury building. I knew I, I really didn't have enough money. And the way I put it to myself was, I want you, Ginger, to have $20,000 at the end of the one year. And I did it. Wow. I, I don't know how I did it. (laughs) I really don't. I mean, that was, that was a thrill. It was, it was terrifying. I think my parents thought I was completely crazy. Okay. And, and somewhere along the line. So I had been working for nine years. And in those nine years, I had one. Well, that three week job maybe shouldn't count, but let's even count okay. that one, two, three, four, five jobs. Yeah. So my father had two jobs his whole adult life. Right. Yeah. And I think he thought, she's not being very stable. And I think he was terribly worried about it. I just said, no, dad, you know, I can do it. I can do it. I've learned so much. And sure. I know I still have a lot to learn, but I know I can do it. By golly, I did. You know, do you think that women start their own practices because they weren't being given those opportunities elsewhere? I think that is exactly right. There's a whole thing about women who move to the position of having their own firms because they can see the path is not going to be open to them otherwise. And even at Tversky, that was a family-owned firm, and I had such a long way to go. But I could see that was not going to be my path. I wasn't going to stay there for life. What I did was really pattern it after what I saw the best practices is what I would call it at Dworsky. I think I did it in a very conventional kind of way. So my first husband, we were still friendly enough, and he designed all my paper goods. He was a graphic designer. Yeah. That, that, that was, it was me. He just figured that out. And it was very 
simple and it was direct. It was very straightforward. And I was running my whole practice that way. I had the luck of getting a phone call. This happened more than once from one of the guys I had worked with back at BKNA. He had started his practice. Mm -hmm. He had more work than he could handle. Could I possibly take on some overflow work? Could I? Oh, my. (laughs) Yes, I I did. And they were so generous. And I helped them. It was high pressure. It all went very fast. They have to deliver very quickly. So if if I have a little shop in a mall and I sign a, a lease agreement, I have to be in construction within 45 days. And that meant I had to be in the building department within 30 days. You know, it was just a quick turnaround. And I was comfortable. I understood that culture. And he just sent me stuff. We did one one, uh, set of drawings. Again, this is still all hand drafting for Sizzler restaurants. And we did a left and a right and a forward and a back and a cold weather for each of those. And we did all those in a very short period of time. And they were building them all over the country. And then I did uh, lots of work for him, but that turned into other things for us. So uh, I got a call one day. I don't even remember the original source, but they were expanding uh, the Buena Park Mall. And I ended up doing around 25 stores. Mm-hmm. Many of them turned out to be small chains of stores. So, you know, I did I did an arts and crafts store was one of them. And they ended up giving me three more locations to mm-hmm. do. And that happened over and over and over mm-hmm. again. You know, and then because of those kinds of chains, I was getting calls. I did a new brand and a whole bunch of stores for the Helene Curtis Corporation. I got a call from Pizza Hut. And they had bought out 65 straw hat pizza locations and they they not only wanted to come into california with 65 stores but they wanted a california image and i gave them a california image for pizza hut and we did 65 stores for them i got a call from fredericks of hollywood (laughs) and when i went and met the owner there he took a hot pink and purple garter and snapped it at me (laughs) and kind of like halfway hit me and practically hit me in the face with it. And it's like, Oh my gosh, what a, what a life I'm living. (laughs) It was so weird. It was so so weird, but I had more and more clients with serious work. You sound, I mean, it sounds like exponential growth there. It wasn't exponential. It was steady. Okay. And you know, two other women architects, came to me and they wanted to sublet space from me. So I doubled from two rooms in the Bradbury building, which was like my desk and chair and then an outer room. And then I, I got two more rooms and they leased for me. So then we had a conference room and their room and my room and the reception. <laughs> and then we really got a lot of business. And I was on the third floor in the Bradbury building. We moved upstairs and we took the whole end of the building practically on the Broadway side, on, wow. the, top, on the top floor wow. of the building. I remember we had a sort of a, a wonderful plateau at about seven people. That was a nice size. And then I think when we moved upstairs there, we had a big, like a drafting room in the mm-hmm. back and library and all that. I think we had around a dozen people, something like that. Once I had been away from RTD for a year, they could call me for work. So oh, I great. was getting work from the transit agency yes. 
all along. And I was doing programming, space planning, interior design, new buildings, old buildings, reviewing work of other architects. I, they kept me busy yeah. for years. Because it sounded like you had really identified while you were working there that these other companies were coming in and overselling what they were going to do and then that's, having... That's what had turned into like a tipping point for me. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, that was when I got that boost of confidence and yes. said, oh, I can deliver. I'm never going to go in and lie about my capabilities. So at some point, we hooked up with some engineers and they all loved us because we were a woman-owned business, right? So they could tick off that on their chart that they were having had a diverse team and all that. And I went along with it. It was okay with me because it was good business, sure. you know, and, and I got a lot of work like that. We were working on RTD's central maintenance facility, and uh, we had a big deadline coming, and we needed to do all the quality control. And my project architect on that said to me, we need some more help. We need to have somebody come in and really check this thing carefully. And that's how I actually met Carl. At that point, that was the largest bus maintenance facility in the West. And so Carl checked it. And he seemed kind of interesting and cute and all this stuff. He rode his bike to work Mm -hmm. because he lived in a loft and he was so informal and just not full of himself. It was just so completely wonderful. So, um, I, I couldn't really react right away because for a short time there, I was his boss actually. Oh yeah. Because that's the way that was. So I didn't follow up at all with him for a couple of years, but that was in 1984, and that's when we actually oh, wow. met. And the rest of it unfolded several years later. Sure. But um, then I got noticed they were going to shut down the Bradbury building for major repairs, and they oh. had a seismic problem. Sure. So they were going to do that, and it's like, <gasps> oh, I have to find someplace else. I have to move. And we did. We had like a dozen people, so yeah. it was sort of a big production. So I'm just getting ready. I'm starting to, you know, just figure out the whole thing to sign a new lease and everything. My dad died. Oh, my I gosh. I just I dropped everything yeah. and went back there. And uh, I stayed for probably a week or something, and I came back, and then I was right up on the deadline. I was right at the point of signing a lease on another space, just basically on the edge of Little Tokyo. We were getting ready to sign the lease, really, and and the owner pulled a fast one on me, and he wasn't going to put in the air conditioning after all. And I said, I can't do that. And I pulled back, and then I was really up against it. Sure. And I went out that very day, and I was still, I mean, I was walking around with my head in the clouds because I had just lost my dad. Sure. And um, I found this other place. It's over at 3rd and Traction, right in the heart of the Arts District, about two-thirds of the ground floor of one of the bigger loft buildings. In 87, we moved over there. And then things just continued to pick up from there, and we just got more and more work. We got the convention center project with Gruen, and all the parts of the old convention center that were remodeled when the new one went in, and all the things that tie it together, that was my project. Not the parking, everything from the parking deck up, but all the original old convention center that we rehabbed, including like commercial kitchens and all the big meeting spaces. That was our project. I was always impatient because, well, why do I have to be a sub to this? And why do I have to be the WBE? And, and, you know, what about that? And then I I didn't appreciate, perhaps until later, these were huge projects. Yeah. And I really did get to participate in some fabulous projects. I was doing work for the LA Unified School District all along. Bunches of school rehab 
projects. I got an on-call agreement with the Postal Service, and we did, I don't know, a couple dozen projects for them. I got another one, just an on-call, with Caltrans and did a whole bunch of work for Caltrans over probably a two-year period, something like that. So I kept getting these. Yes. We just kept growing. Fast forward, Carl and I got married in the summer of 89. So we were doing that. One day I got this call back to the guy who had first sent me some of the retail overflow work. Sure. He had had a call from these people and they were in construction on a project and they just needed some help. It was not working out right. That was the LA mission. And we ended up saving that project for them. And Carl took that on and he led that. Got built and it looks great and it works great and everybody was happy. The next thing that came along was more work for Metro because we won the North Hollywood subway station. Mm-hmm. And Carl was our project manager for that. He really gets all the credit for how that one works so well. And the thing I love about it is of all the stations that I'm aware of around LA, that's the one that's holding up best. And we designed those for a hundred year life. It's working. Oh, I love that. So that went well. We grew. We had a couple of dozen people there. Yeah. You know, maybe 27 or 8 on the day that I ended. That That's a huge accomplishment. I mean, just to be so diversified, first of all, and to have gone and feeling like you could do the work, but you didn't know how to, like, get work. work. I, I mean, right? <laughs> well, it happened, didn't it? Yeah. And what happened was I just made friends with people. And once they trusted me enough to do some work for them, they came back because yeah. we never messed up. We were never sued. Nothing bad ever really happened. And we had a few things that we were really proud of. I, I had another on-call agreement with the LA Department of Water and Power. Some people, I think, consider it kind of boring, but it's not. I am interested in not the immediate fashion of design. If we're designing something for a long life, I want it to be workable the whole time. Mm-hmm. And if it needs to be modernized and upgraded, fine, but it's got to stand up to that. So I learned that in one way, I was a natural marketer because I loved it so much. I really was true to myself. I'm not going to be other than brutally honest about it all. And by golly, I am going to deliver. And I think we always did. And if I were now, you know, like summing up my life because I was going to die in a month, <laughs> I, as a friend of mine, well, you know, if, if I just knew the end was in sight, I think it would be to say that I was true to myself and it only worked for me because I was so enthusiastic. I think that was contagious. Mm-hmm. Somebody said to me, you know, you're such a, what's the word she used? Not icon, but it was something like that. And I'm so saying like, well, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> your chats. I am still just me. All I've ever really done is put one foot in front of the other. And I didn't go in with some ambition that said, oh, I want to have this huge firm. Oh, I want to do that. I really, truly, I just wanted to participate. And because participating has brought me joy. So was it easy to work long hours? It wasn't easy, but it wasn't all that hard. <laughs> I just, I, I completely loved it. Now it's not over. I mean, it's like sort of over, but it's not completely over. Sure. I'm waiting for the next gig. I, I want something, <laughs> something interesting to do. Yeah. It sounds like you loved it so much. Were there any parts of it that were hard, like challenging to you? I didn't really know much except my seat of the pants education about business management. 
I had a line of credit, but I barely ever tapped it. Same idea. Could I fulfill it? Basically, I did everything out of pocket. You know, I remember at some point, and it wasn't at the end either. It was earlier than that when we were smaller. My two-week payroll was what my parents had paid for a four-bedroom house. Wow. This was completely outside anything that they had done. So I, I felt my way. I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes of all the things. I mean, what really got me was cash flow. Cash flow was tough, tough, tough. And I didn't have the nerve to borrow with the confidence that, oh, it'll come. I'll, I'll win this big one. And I'll, I'll pay it back. I just didn't. And that gets a lot of business people. Yeah. So if you looked at the statistics, what I remember from years ago, they said 80% of small businesses are gone within five years. I mean, right. it's just too hard. People don't really know. So I lasted for 20 I did it. I, you can never take that away from me. I'll always know that I did that thing and I grew over yeah, the years. That's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, it was. You know, in my early experience, I saw that I was going to make my own future. But then later on, I ended up working in three large corporate environments. And I saw all the things that I didn't like about those kinds of places, particularly the infighting and the office politics. Sure. But I still was able to do some good stuff. I worked hard for them. They compensated me well. I surprised myself that late in my career, because I did work another 20 years after closing my business, I have proven to myself, I didn't think of it as needing to, but I did prove to myself that even in that environment, I could find my place. And in each of those three instances I was talking about, I supervised a group of people. When I worked at STV, I had 45 people under my wing. That was an expansion for me. So that was sharpening myself up. And at Cal State, I had a smaller group, but we were very focused and we had a lot of work that went out quickly. At one point, I had 145 active projects at one time. Ooh, smaller projects. And then when I got to what is now WSP, but this is the old honored name of Parsons Brinkerhoff, I actually led all the architects for the whole Western United States. And architects are the stepchildren in a huge engineering firm. I was running into the classic problems of being misunderstood I would counsel people too from my own staff saying, I know they don't get it, that they maybe even consider the work that we're doing, the window dressing and just prettying it up. Now we're going to have to figure out how to disabuse them of that. And sometimes we're not going to be successful at it. And so I learned all the frustrations of working in the big corporate yeah. environment. But at the same time, I had the gratification that not only I, but my staff were making headway and that we were valued and that they knew they needed us. We worked on some wonderful projects. We recently did the extension of the Expo line out to Santa Monica. We did seven stations. We had a large rail station. That is the Arctic Center, Anaheim Regional Transportation Intermodal Center. And I was recruited to take this thing on. Oh, I see. The project was still in design. We actually had a subconsultant doing that. This was an HOK architectural design. Oh, I see. Well, I had 25 or six subconsultant firms on my team. Wow. I was I was overall project manager for the whole thing. So HOK, but also engineers of every stripe you could imagine. And I was basically on that project for three years and got it to opening. We have two freight lines that come through there. 
Amtrak comes through there. Metrolink comes through there. At the terminal, we have retail tenants. We accommodate all the bus lines, the taxi lines. You know, we let Uber in, we let Lyft in, everybody. Huge amounts of parking during baseball season. We actually have a whole other platform just for the baseball trains. And then we had to fit in with uh, everything that was going on in terms of, of Anaheim. Sure. And how it all worked. That was my last big project. It has won a bazillion awards. We won a lot of architectural awards. So HOK yeah. made that possible, but they needed me to. <laughs> so I participated <laughs> and I felt really good about that. That brought a lot of honor to Parsons Brinkerhoff. And I was with them for seven years and I loved it there. Wow. It seems like you just had all these really wonderful experiences. What are you doing now? And what do you see for your future? Well, what I'm doing now has one hole in it because I don't have an architectural project. I am on the oversight committee for all the, the Measure M money that Metro has. So how that $21 billion gets spent responsibly, I'm the only architect on that committee. And I used to do that for the LA Unified School District. So that's keeping my hand in one way. But I probably need a gig in which I'm helping untangle a problem project or giving some advice or some kind of thing. But then beyond that, my husband and I bought a place in my hometown in Pennsylvania. It was built in 1841. It's an old church building. And when my mom was still alive, I would take her out here because it was a knitting shop. And my mother and grandmother had taught me to knit when I was five years old. The whole place was filled with yarn. And I'm getting ready to remodel it. And I'm starting a new venture. It's not so much a business. I'm calling it my studio. I want to have a, a busy place. So I'm just sort of transformed over to this other thing and being an architect, but being an architect who does all this. You were elevated to the College of Fellows. Mm -hmm. I think about all these things where you were running your own business and it was a huge success. You became a fellow, which is the highest honor that you can get from the AIA. Exactly. I mean... Well... I think everybody, in theory, aspires to get it for design. I didn't make my mark as a designer. I care about design. I feel that some of the work we did was excellent and could hold its own against anybody, but it was not flash type of stuff, and the clients weren't flashy, and the budgets weren't flashy. If it wasn't that higher profile stuff, it was more low profile. And... um the whole time I was doing all this stuff, I was active in my community. I was active in... AWA, which is now AWA plus D. I was active in the AIA, and I actually, at one point, I was president of that chapter. I was always doing things in charitable organizations, starting soon after I got to LA in the old Voluntary Action Center. That now has been transformed into something else, but it led to all kinds of other things. I got active in the YWCA, and I was president of the Y for three years of Los Angeles. That got me more involved with United Way, and I was on the executive committee of United Way for some time. I have been for 20 years already a board member, and I am a past president of 211 Los Angeles, which is, you know, like you can call 911 an emergency. You can call 211 for referrals in health and human services. Uh -huh. We have like 100 people working for us. I am so proud of that organization. And now covering much of the country, 
you can just dial 211. It's dazzling to me. I love being part of that. And so come full circle to why I got fellowship in the AIA. I got it over service to the profession because my doing all that outward stuff, I was always identified as an architect. I was very active. I mean, there were other organizations too, but those were the main ones. And I had gotten clients that way. The American Heart Association was my client at one time doing little renovations to a building. And this is sort of the butterflies and pea pods or something, but I wanted work that had social import, that helps people live a better life. That's why I could be satisfied, in fact, happy with projects that were maybe in the public sector and helping people move around. We all know that public transportation mostly serves the people who can't afford their own private transportation so well. Or social services kinds of things, childcare centers, medical work, community centers, housing. We did public housing and we did quite a bit of it. We did a whole bunch of homeless housing. That ended up helping probably a couple thousand people anyway. Yeah. Now we've got this homeless problem. I just, I care so deeply about it and I want to help. And I'm not alone in this. Yeah. This takes group effort and it, it really takes determination that we will solve this. It's gotten so huge and so out of hand in LA. So um, I don't have any answers, <laughs> just concerns. All of that served to leave something behind that's not just a pile of bricks. Yeah. And to me, that's the ultimate legacy. Mm -hmm. I'll never have a lot, a lot of money. I have one stepchild. I'd lay down my life for her in a heartbeat, but I don't have a lot of children. If I have a husband, I do look after him and his welfare. But if I have a legacy, it would be something like, she helped. (laughs) (laughs) She participated. You know, it wouldn't, it's not flashy. I'm not going to win any big awards. It's not quite like that. But I, I have always felt that this was of real benefit to other people. And that's just what drives me. You seem so humble about all of these things that are just like incredible to me. Well, th- thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. This is not going to sound very humble, but I don't have to work at that. No. <laughs> that you're seeing my natural self. actually. And it sounds so corny to say it, but you know, at the heart of that is love. It really is. Sure. We've talked a little bit, but not a whole lot about AWA. Yes. Let's talk about it. Uh All through school, we women were 10% of my class. Our class started out with 70 people, seven women. We graduated 23, two women. It wasn't horrible, but we were always aware. We did in fact have to work a little harder. So once I heard about AWA, oh man, I was all in. That was in 1973. Is that 45 years? No. 73. It's 45 45, years? 45, yeah. Wow. (laughs) So pretty soon I can have my 50th year in AWA. (laughs) And I became aware that other women had a harder time than I did. My wanting just to participate was not working out necessarily all that well for other women. If I could help, by golly, I was going to. And a lot of what that has been over the years is just providing encouragement. When I started out, I did get involved with AIA. I was on their national task force on women in architecture. And AIA was not counting women. So we didn't know People had gone through the roster and tried to identify who were women. And they were coming up with 1.2%, maybe 2% women. Once I remember hearing 3% women. Now, fast forward to today. Some of the schools are majority women. Are they, in terms of licensed architects, 
women in management positions, women at the lead? No, we're in the pipeline. I helped make that happen. And so I'm proud of that. Absolutely. I'm I'm proud of that. Just within the context of reality. Yeah. I didn't do anything flashy. (laughs) I didn't. I didn't. But that's what it actually takes. It's our group efforts to make that happen. And so I look today, I look at this Me Too thing. I have some Me Too experiences. Sure. Nothing so terrible happened to me that I had to recover. I really get it. And for that reason, I want to help other women. I think that a lot of your success probably was because you were just so gosh darn determined that this is what you wanted to do and you were going to do it. Yes, I think so. I've always had to laugh at myself. And Carl, at one point he called me relentless. And I don't think he was wrong. Even the way I work, just my work pattern within the day, I get myself geared up and I go. I just push, 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 push. And if I'm out of steam, I stop and do it the next day. But that's my way. So I was, it's not even healthy, but, you know, I would look up at three o'clock and say like, oh, I forgot to eat lunch. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and then I would, I yeah. would do something. And, but that is born of the passion for it. And it still all comes from that, just wanting to participate. Yeah. I, I laugh at myself for that. But in those days, when I was starting out, just participating wasn't a given. I'm so glad we've moved beyond that. So having had such a rich and really varied experience, and then also having your involvement with AWA, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to women now who are practicing? I think AWA plus D is confronted in the classic way. We always got this 45 years ago when I was in AWA. Why do you need to be separate? You've made it. So why do you have to have a thing that's just for women? And my answer always was, well, first of all, men are very welcome to join. We'd love to have men. What we're trying to do is promote the overall cause. And the cause is just taking our rightful place within this profession without impediments. I don't see how anybody can actually say, well, but that's over. Because it just isn't. We have a long way to go. At some point, I told somebody that I thought architecture was the natural profession for women. You know, we don't have to run down a football field and get our heads (laughs) knocked. It's intellectual work. It's real work. Our brains are just as good. It's a natural place for us. And I don't make much about differentiation between the sexes. I don't know enough. So I would just say, it's just a great place to be. So let's make it better and better and better. And I, I would say, until we're at parity... Keep it going. Yeah. And when we're at parody, maintain the parody. So don't go away. (laughs) You know? Agreed. And that's our show. Now, remember that promise you made me at the beginning of this episode? Well, if you enjoyed it, please visit iTunes and write a review. Thanks so much for listening to our 12th episode of the XXLA Architects Podcast. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Virginia Tansman. To find out more about our show, please visit our website at www.xx-la.com.